Welcome back to the Friends and Neighbors podcast. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and this week, Resilience Lab psychotherapist, Elisa Payne. Welcome back to the Friends and Neighbors podcast. This week, my old friend, Elisa Pamer, catches us up on her recent transformation from music marketer to psychotherapist with critical sidebars on Queen, Styx, and Billy Joel. But first, an update. I signed off of the Friends and Neighbors podcast at the end of January to focus on post-production of my second documentary film, also called Friends and Neighbors. The film explores trauma and chronic stress's role in our individual and collective wellness and traces a path of healing and resiliency through interviews with helpers like Senator Sarah McBride, community activist Logan Herring, and integrative medicine specialist, Dr. Zachary Mulvihill. I'm pleased to report that we've completed post-production of a 75-minute edit of the film. To those of you who pitched in to our crowdfunding campaign, thank you. Your contributions made producing two additional shoots, licensing footage, hiring a second editor, and commissioning an animator possible. It'll be some time before the film premieres to the public. Still, we're grateful for your support and we'll keep you posted. And a programming note that I'll be hosting the Wilmington premiere of my first film, Mr. Rogers and Me, on Saturday, May 6th at 7 p.m. Afterwards, Delaware's First Lady, Tracy Quillen Carney, Trauma Matters Delaware Board President, Dr. Julius Mullen Sr. and I will mark Mental Health Awareness Month with a discussion of Fred Rogers' Legacy of Care, all benefiting Trauma Matters Delaware, a statewide collective advancing the effort to prevent and heal trauma. In fact, all month long, we're gonna be sharing stories of wellness and healing right here on the Friends and Neighbors podcast. First up, Elisa Payne. I came to know Elisa in the early aughts as a Sony music marketer by day and local singer-songwriter by night. When I recently saw that she'd begun taking patients as a newly minted psychotherapist, I reached out to learn more. What follows is Elisa's retelling of that mid-career transformation, an exploration of the road that led from a musical childhood in Ossining, New York, to all-dude engineering classes at NYU, to here, and ultimately, a reminder that it ain't over till it's over. The only thing I wanted to do was be in the music business. It was a non-negotiable. There were times when my career skewed a little out of the music business and I just drove it right back in. And I was really happy there. Sure, there are challenges along the way, but for the most part, it was... I was really very self-actualized. It was where I wanted to be. It was who I was. It was a definition of myself. Then I got laid off. And I've been laid off many times in my career. Yeah, that's, that's the modern condition. It is. It is. Especially with the entertainment business. There's ups and downs and jobs won and jobs lost. And it's okay. But then I get laid off when I was in my 50s. And suddenly, Getting back in was a lot harder than it had been 10, 20, 30 years previous to that. And that hadn't occurred to me, actually, because I didn't see myself as any different. 
I knew what my skill set was. I'd been doing this work for a long time. I felt completely confident that I would just segue into another similar job. And that did not happen. I'd never even taken a psychology class. I was an audio engineering major in the 80s. I learned how to splice tape with a razor blade. (laughs) So that was what I originally thought I was going to do. And then I ended up working for record companies and found that much more interesting. Then COVID hit and everybody went home and stayed home. And I thought, well, I'll just apply to grad school and see what happens. I only applied to Hunter because it was the only school I could go to without taking out loans which makes it actually really difficult to get into because it's a great school for social work and it is a fraction of the price of NYU and Columbia. I kept doing job interviews and I thought, well, if I get into grad school, I'll figure it out then. And I got in and I thought, this is crazy. I'm interviewing for jobs that are basically the job description that I've had in the past and not getting these jobs And I applied to a pretty competitive grad school that I have zero experience in this field, like nothing at all. And I got accepted. So it kind of felt like the world was pushing me down this particular path, and I would be stupid not to follow it. But I I did not go gently. (laughs) I, I had a job interview the day I sent my payment into CUNY. I was like, if there is any opportunity for me to do what I thought I was supposed to be doing, I'm going to do it. And next thing I know, I am taking my first class in 30 years and spent two years in school, quit my job, which was amazing, and was fortunate enough to just do school for two years, which is a real gift that I know a lot of people don't have the opportunity to do. I graduated last year and started working as a psychotherapist, with the focus actually on people in the entertainment industry. I did my second year internship at the Entertainment Community Fund, which was really, really satisfying. And I'm working now also as a case manager for Backline, which finds mental health resources for people in the music industry. So that's really where my focus is. I I wrote my thesis on mental health in the music industry. It's how I'm able to combine the things that mean a lot to me. And in some ways, I feel closer to the industry now than I did when I was working in marketing. I suspect you could answer this both given what you're doing now and you're as a musician. I actually feel more healthy than ever in terms of anxiety and depression, which is interesting. I wouldn't say I'm anxious or depressed, though I would have five years ago. You know, which came first, the music or the misery from high fidelity? You know what I mean? Like, am I a musician because there was so much dysfunction happening at home? It was the only way I could process. And that ended up leading me out of the wilderness or the opposite. Does that field have a overabundance of those who might be less liable to be well by some standard definition? People in the arts, people who are artists, generally have more mental health challenges. They tend to be more sensitive. They tend to be more aware of things, which helps their art, right. but also can make life more difficult. Right. And, and then they often value that mental health difficulty because it adds to their art. Yeah, it's a catalyst or something. Yeah, yeah. it's like a, it's like a catch-22. I don't want to feel better because I don't want to stop being able to write songs. Yeah. But I have always disagreed with that philosophy. 
I think you can be an artist without suffering. You can tap into what that suffering is without having to live it. My philosophy is it's two-pronged. You want to solve the problem. You need a solution. You're going into therapy because you are uncomfortable. Right. You know, physically, mentally, you want that part to be fixed. But you also want to figure out where it comes from so you have more control over it next time. The guy I went to for years, like it was semi-useful, but there was no like prophylactics, like here's how to get in front of it. I get what you're saying. And actually, I think my experience as a professional business person leads me to be more solution focused. I'm not like sit on the couch and tell me about your father. Perhaps there's a time for that. But I know when I was in therapy, I was like, I need to get rid of this anxiety. So if it's not going to be a drug, I need coping skills. Give me some born and raised, like context and environment. Paint a picture for me, sound-wise, vision-wise. I grew up in um, Austin, New York, with my parents and my sister. Was always a singer, always played piano. When did the singing start and when did it start to feel like something that felt like you wanted to do it more? It was always there. I mean, I don't remember when it started. I sang The Sun Will Come Out Tomorrow from Annie at my fifth grade graduation. Me too. (laughs) Not at a graduation, but we saw it at the Schubert Theater in Chicago. Yeah. I sang it every morning for like ever. I I get it. That was the first Broadway show I ever saw. And it really was life changing. I say to people that it's actually every song I've ever written. Like, (laughs) not literally, obviously, but conceptually like... They're darker, I think, but then they always have a thread of that. That's amazing. I love that we share that. That's so great. (laughs) Uh, And there's that feeling, you know, of being on stage. That's always amazing. That has never stopped being amazing. I love performing. And then I started taking piano lessons and I started writing songs and I started buying albums and I just knew it was what I was going to do. I I didn't want to major in performance in college. I didn't necessarily see how, a, how performance was going to be a career. It just seemed too difficult. So that's why I majored in audio engineering, because I thought I could be around music every day and make music every day. It was challenging, though, because, first of all, I am not electronically inclined which is one of the reasons I never actually went into the field because I was much more comfortable in the record label side of it than the studio side of it. There was a lot of drugs. There were a lot of crazy hours. Yeah. It really wasn't my scene. And there were no women. There were like three women in my major at school. And this is in the late 80s. Yeah, you were way out front on that. Yeah. It wasn't something that had occurred to me. I was just like, well, this is what I want to do. So I'm going to go to school and learn it. And then I got there and I was like, there's no women. There's a lot of drugs. And that wasn't my scene. And I mean, I'd be working like overnights and then coming to school the next morning. And (sighs) even in my like late teens, early twenties, that wasn't my thing. It's not a great environment at all. No. Give me a couple of early records. I love specifics. Oh, well, here's where I start getting embarrassing. Oh, please. Come on. We started with Annie and I'm a thousand percent with you. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah, I'm working I'll give you get. some like I like Sticks, Neil Diamond. I mean, Sticks. please. Like- All right. I was going to say Sticks and I'm like, here I go. Sticks was my first 
rock concert at the Brendan Byrne Arena at the Meadowlands. Wow. Was it the Paradise Theater era? No, it was Kilroy was here. Oh, it was after Paradise Theater. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Mr. Roboto. Yes. Mr. Roboto. I was blown away by that show. Yeah. It was, I'm sure. it was like theater. And I was totally into Broadway. But yeah, no, Paradise Theater is one of my first albums. I love sticks. Do you remember the LP had like a hologram on it? If you like I do. When my sister and I were kids, we had the Queen Live Killers album. Mm. And we put it on the turntable and we'd turn all the lights off and blast that and just sit there in the room and like kind of like pretend we were there. Oh, totally. Oh, I see. Right. Chris and I would put on 52nd Street by Billy Joel or Glass Houses. Yep. And we'd had tennis rackets in the garage. <laughs> yeah. We'd close the door and just be like, you know, I mean, so I feel totally. like, what was the dinner table like? We had dinner together every night. We were a pretty tight family in Austin. My mom worked for my dad. He had his own business. So they were home most of the time. I wasn't a latchkey kid. I came home uh, and my mom was there. Were they interested in, in you and your sister and asking questions? I think the fact that my family was loving and supportive gives me an underlying sense of safety Yeah, where I feel like I could take the chances that I've taken in my life because I have been cared for, especially coming from the psychotherapy field. A lot of what happens at the dinner table informs how people approach their own lives later on. And it's funny, I actually never really thought of that as being part of it, it just existed. I didn't really think twice about it. But the way our parents are with each other and how they are with us informs so much. And I I wish that wasn't the case because it puts so much pressure on parents. And they're only human and people get divorced. And in many cases, that's a better choice than staying together. But it does have repercussions on kids and it doesn't have to be bad. But it does have an effect. Tell me a little bit about like who you were in high school. See, I told you we're going back. <laughs> like, did, were you in musicals? Were you in band? Were you in student council? What'd you love? And how did that inform who you are today? I always joke that I wanted to make sure that I had the longest blurb in the yearbook. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's great. I did choir, I did band, I did the musicals. I I definitely was the music person in high school. I started writing songs in high school, although I didn't really perform them until college or after college. But I definitely defined myself as the music person. And that's a lot of something that has come with me my whole life is that definition of myself as a music person, which was one of the reasons it was so hard to leave the industry proper. Because then the whole thing is, well, who am I if I'm not in the music business? From my vantage point, you did a really nice job positioning this pivot contextually. To me, it seems as connected as ever. I mean, and in fact, in a lot of ways, it seems likely that your impact is potentially greater. I would bet you already would say my impact is greater, would you? Absolutely. And that's not to say that all my clients are musicians, because... They're not. I work yeah. with all sorts of people. I like working with musicians because I get them in artists in general, people in entertainment in general. Yeah, it's a marketing thing to a certain extent also. 
And that was actually something I learned in school, talking to other therapists. Position yourself. It's a very broad field. Yeah. You know, who are you going to be in this field? And it was like, well, I already know who I am. I'm in the music world. And I always will be on some level because I'm never going to stop being a musician. What was the delta? I, had, I love to explore this idea because I had such a strong experience myself between you as a freshman at NYU and you as a graduate of NYU. I can sum it up for you in a song. Oh, amazing. I came into school as an audio engineering major. That was what I wanted to do. I was stoked. And by the time I got to senior year, I was like, holy shit, I don't think I want to do this as a career. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, I've just spent four years and God knows how much of my parents' money <laughs> studying such a specific field. And I don't want to be an audio engineer. Being a senior was the scariest part of college. And yes. there is a Waterboy song called This is the Sea. And it wasn't even the Waterboy's rendition of it that got me going. I'm a big fan of Luca Bloom, oh. an Irish singer-songwriter. Did I get you with that one too? The electric motorbike? Sure. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I couldn't have come at a better time was a very important song to me, freshman, uh, for sure. Yeah. He is amazing. Yeah. Part of the reason I bought a guitar was that record. 100%. Well, good luck because he uses tunings that are beyond my comprehension. Yeah. I learned that later. <laughs> yeah. Good luck. I love it. Totally. I was like, wait, that's not an E major at all. I don't, I don't know what that is, but it sounds like he has 14 strings on that guitar. He does a cover of the Waterboys, This is the Sea. And I saw him play it. I think it was like at Tramps, my uh -huh. senior year in college. He's like, that was the river. This is the sea. And that summed up my entire mindset in college. It was like my whole life until that point was the river. It's all going in one direction. Ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade. You're just following the way to go. Yeah. And then you get out to the ocean and there is no direction. There are a million possibilities. And now what do you do? I still use that idea, that metaphor for when you're faced with what is the right decision? How do you know what to do next? Because the rest of life is just the sea. The river's over. How do you advise if I come to you and I'm seated across from you or Zooming with you and I say, I don't, I don't know what to do. If you use that metaphor, what would your next point of guidance or encouragement or like, how would you direct me? What feels right? What mm -hmm. doesn't make you feel upset? What doesn't make you feel anxious? What feels right? Because a lot of times we make decisions based on what we think we're supposed to do. Yeah. Part of the challenge with me going back to school is who does that? You're an older student. Oh, yeah, you're in your 30s. I was an older student in my 50s. I was older than all my professors. <laughs> That's an uncomfortable position to be in sometimes. Good for you. But just think about the experience that you have on them. Oh, yeah. For the first time ever in job interviews, people would be like, well, I really i am interested in you coming here because of your age. Yeah. As opposed to the total opposite <laughs> before. Being older has been a huge benefit, and I never saw that as a possibility. Uh, I love it. Yay, yeah. universe. Yeah. What if you said to me, trust your feelings versus what you're thinking? And I say to you, I don't know what my feelings are. Do you get that? Yeah. Or does everybody you work with know how to work with their feelings? No, not everybody knows how to work with their feelings. Some people don't know what their feelings are. 
some people don't know what good feelings are. They're only feeling mm. the bad stuff. Yeah. But the other thing is, don't rush it. You know, you're under no obligation to know right now. Let things settle. Live in the moment a bit and see where it takes you. Yeah. I feel like that's my main refrain as a consultant is slow your roll. <laughs> like, yeah. You're out over your skis. It's all good. <laughs> Just take a deep breath, tell yourself you're safe and go to bed. You know right, I mean? right. Like, go for a walk, you know? There's a lot of societal pressure to like do, do, do and come up with decisions and, and make things happen. And sometimes that's just against human nature. We need to take time to stop and listen to ourselves and just be with ourselves. I had a conversation with a, for the fulfillment, an integrative medicine MD from New York Presbyterian yesterday. And he was talking about fight, flight, rest, and digest. And he was suggesting that there's the biology of rest and digest, but there's also the psychology of rest and digest, which is obvious. But until he put it that way, I was like, oh, right. You know, and he was talking about the cycle of the day and where the sun is in relation to how we're experiencing our time during the day and how we've totally blown that with staying up late and drinking coffee and working all the time and mm -hmm. zooming all the time and all things. But uh, I thought that was really interesting. Like that reminder that you need time to process. And if you're watching something and binging something or going through some feed, you're probably not digesting and resting. Yeah. Digesting and resting isn't encouraged in the world. And it's so important. And it makes us better at doing the stuff we have to do. What is happening in the world from the vantage point of wellness, whether it's music industry or broader? There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of worry. And it's funny too. I think there's a lot of coming out of COVID anxiety. Sure. I mean, COVID was difficult, but on some level, coming out of COVID is also difficult. And people aren't sure what to do, how to be, how they've changed, how the world has changed. People want to be better at living their lives. Mm. And we're not really taught how to be good at that. Isn't that crazy? It is. Just the idea of like, get the job, do the job, get the promotion, get the next job. That is kind of what's the shtick. Meet the spouse, marry the spouse, have the kid, buy the home. It's like, <laughs> okay, but there's a lot of time in between all of that. And those are just yeah. markers, really. Well, those are just the outward. That's how we judge each other. Yeah. And if we don't meet those markers, then we worry that we're going to be judged poorly. But they're kind of irrelevant. Yeah. The important part is how you are inside, how you interact with your world. If you can find joy, so many people don't look for that, don't, yeah. don't think it's important. Or if they think it's important, they don't have time for it. Yeah. And that makes everything else better is to be grateful and appreciative and find things that are funny and happy. You know, it sounds trite, but funny and happy is really a key part of it. <laughs> is that the primary guidance you find yourself giving is trying to help people cultivate practice around joy and gratitude? I do. I think joy is so underrated and not paid attention to because we're so busy worrying about stuff that we can't control. 
And a lot of the time, people don't even know what it is that they can't control. They just have this feeling of existential dread. They want to do things better. Like if I ask a client, you know, what they want out of therapy, so much of it is just, I want to be happier. I want to live a better life. I want to be able to have the tools to like get through the day. This is just basic, basic stuff. Why is that, you think? Where are we off? Maybe we're putting priorities on the wrong things. Yeah. And maybe we don't take time to be kind to ourselves. Yeah. You know, we're always the ones we treat the worst. Yeah. And a lot of times I'll tell clients, well, look, if your friend was going through this, what would you tell them? How would you feel about them? And they're always far more forgiving and understanding of somebody else than they are of their own experience. At the end of my term at Facebook, the manager was like, hey, right as COVID was hitting, she's like, you seem to be really good at this sort of team building and the general wellness and helping people feel better. Could you whip up some programs so that we have something to do to help each other? And so I called it managing uncertainty. And it actually, in a lot of ways, is what led me to all of what I'm doing now. But so much of it is just cultivating practices around reflection and gratitude and and self-talk. So I make posters that remind me, like I have one of it that says, love begins with listening, which is a Fred Rogers quote. Like just, mm-hmm. you know, because otherwise, if I just were to go to the self-talk that I've had for the last 35 years, it'd be like, you dummy, that's not good enough. Come on. But you know, when people say that too, my question would be, where did you learn that? Right. Who taught you that, that, that you were a dummy? Yeah. Because you pick that up unconsciously or actively throughout your life. You come up with these perceptions about yourself over time because you've seen it from people, you've heard it from people, and you don't know how to get rid of it. For the last year, I've been making this movie. And until two months ago, my answer was when people said, what's it about? I'd say it's about trauma and chronic stress and its impact on us as individuals and society. And they'd be like, uh, and that would be the end of the conversation. (laughs) What's your movie about trauma? (laughs) Yeah. And now, and now I say it's about resilience, right? So that's why I asked, you know, and I was going to ask, how do you foster and encourage resilience in people? It's like a muscle that needs to be exercised. Mm. It takes work because a lot of times we don't know how to do it. We, maybe we've never done it before. I mean, life is hard. There are things to be anxious about. There are stressors. There are things to be sad about. No amount of therapy is going to change that. It's how you decide to deal with life when it gets difficult and not let it overwhelm you and find ways to accept okay, right now I'm sad. Right now I'm worried. Right now I'm depressed. And not letting that define you and not letting that keep you from being able to move past it when it's time. What's your go-to when you're having those moments? I'm guessing you do still have those moments. Of course. (laughs) Mm, Giving my husband a hug. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Knowing that I'm loved and cared for breathing. (laughs) Yeah, totally. There's so many different kinds of breathing exercises. And sometimes it's just about finding the one that's right for you. I don't like holding my breath, feels stressful. So like box breathing, when you breathe in four, hold for four, let go Mm -hmm. four. I don't like that. I do like breathing in for four and then out for six. Because breathing out slower than breathing in indicates to your body that it is time to relax. 
I actually think it's one of the reasons I like singing so much because sure. it's a lot of that breath work. It's a lot of the deep in and then the slower out as you yeah. sing the phrase. Back to music saved my life. Yeah. Physically and emotionally. The first movie Chris and I made about Fred Rogers, he said to me something to the effect of, I feel so strongly that deep and simple is far more essential than shallow and complex, which is why my company is called Essential. Yeah. And he was referring to the little prince. What's essential is invisible to the eye. But at the end of the day, it's pretty simple. We just forget. Walk, breathe, hug, sing, dance. Yeah. These are just natural things to us. And we, we forget about them. In my head, I was like, it's almost marketing's fault. It's not marketing's fault. It's capitalism's fault. And marketing is just part of the way that things are sold to us. We're marketed these products that are supposed to solve things that only these basic things actually solve. A beer doesn't really solve it. A new car doesn't really solve it, but it's packaged or new makeup from Sephora. You know, they're not solutions per se. Well, they're short-term solutions. I mean, working with clients that you know, have financial problems because they buy too much because buying things makes them feel good. Right. Or they drink too much because drinking makes them feel good. Yeah. And yeah, drinking makes you feel good, but it is not the solution to the problem and it's just going to make things worse. You transformed more than change, wouldn't you say? Maybe. I mean, I don't discount everything that came before. I loved my career. I couldn't have done this earlier. Sure. I, I didn't want to do it earlier. I'm really relieved that I was able to find something else to do that is satisfying to me rather than have to like spend the next 20 years being miserable because I couldn't find a job that I liked. And jobs are important. I mean, they're important to me. They always have been. They're a big part of my identity. You know, what you do for a living, some people more than others, for me, it's always been a big part of who I am. I've visited Sony Music for 23 years, on and off. I remember saying, you know, who am I if I'm not a Lisa from Sony? It was a real leap for me to think of myself as not working at Sony Music. Reimagining who you are is an important skill that I had to really learn. And I'm still going through it. Yeah, me too. Me too. And you're also still Elisa. Yeah, but, you know, redefining that definition, who is Elisa? It can be hard. We moved from New York prior to COVID and I kept commuting, which was not good. And I was traveling globally. And then the pandemic struck and I worked out of my laptop for another year and a half. At that point, you know, I was in a new town with a new job, i.e. my own, because I was like, I'm doing my own thing. I was neither MTV nor Facebook, which were big recognizable things that, to your point, meant a lot to me from an identity standpoint. Right. There was a moment where I was like, I have to find another high profile job because what will so-and-so think? And I literally was like, dude, so-and-so, you're probably not going to talk to so-and-so ever again. So who cares? <laughs> what do you think? You know what I mean? I totally, I totally feel you with that. I have to find another high profile job because what will people think of me? Yeah. I won't be as important in the world if I'm not working for some big corporation. That's insane. How, yeah, yeah. Why did I think that? 
It might be insane, by the way, but I don't think that's unusual. No, it's not. Because our society puts a lot of import on who you work for and what you do for money. And as you know, because I'm sure you counsel this and you've found your own way to this, but the thing I told myself and now I tell others is like, what I do, I get asked to do career talks still because of what I've done for my career. And my last slide is always a picture of my family. And I was like, but that's not all of who I am. This is who I am. Right. It's a process to disentangle yourself from who you think you are based on what society tells you is valuable. How would you counsel your 10-year-old self if you could tell her what you've learned or how you could inform how she moves through the world based on your perspective today? What would you tell her? Mm, Don't worry so much. You have everything you need inside you. Uh, It's like what I say at the end of yoga to myself every time. No joke. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. And by the way, I ask this all the time and it's almost always a version of that. I'm not saying that to be reductive or to make you feel lesser than, but instead to, you know, illustrate the shared experience we have as humans. Did I miss anything or is there anything else you'd like to share? Uh, Just that it's never too late to change things. We change throughout our lives. And sometimes we don't notice when we've changed because we're so used to the way things are. And we might not be as happy as we could be because we're just accustomed to being who we are and where we are. But it's okay if your priorities change. It's okay if your interests change. It's okay if your direction in life changes. There's no deadline for that. There's always a chance to make a change if you want to make a change, no matter your age. Friends and Neighbors podcast is an essential industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Please rate and review the podcast on your favorite platform. Not only does it help us to improve the show, but it also helps other people discover and join our neighborhood. Please visit friendsandneighborshow.com to listen to previous episodes or subscribe to our newsletter. We promise not to spam you, but we will deliver fresh and meaningful news and information straight to your inbox every week. And I'd love to hear from you directly. Drop me an email at benjaminbwagner at gmail.com. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends.